0: Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to and not in place of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Uh, morning again, Springs Church. Good morning to everybody. Are uh, you ready to get in the Word this morning? All right, do me a favor. Turn to First Kings chapter 19. We'll get there in a moment. Um, but before we get there, I just want to uh, make you aware that actually on our tab for giving online and on our app, as well as with um, the envelopes in your seat pocket, we actually have a fund uh, for Dan Crosby and his family. I, I shared just briefly, if you weren't here, you were getting into the service at the very start. Uh, Dan Crosby, the pastor of Fuel Church in Monument, has passed away unexpectedly. He went home to be with the Lord. Um, he's left two children and his wife. Uh, he had a hernia, there was a blood clot, and they weren't able to to do the surgery or whatever was needed to be able to to, to get him through it, and he went home, but... Uh, we're gonna be taking an offering this week and next week for the family, a special offering. And if you go online and you go to the donate button, there will actually be a tab where you can actually give to the Crosby family. You could write it on those envelopes or you could do it on our app. And my hope and my prayer is that as a church, we'd be able to raise $10,000 and send it to his wife, Maria, and to their two children, amen? So please pray about that. And if you feel the Lord pulling on your heart to do it, or you're just feeling the conviction of your pastor, <laughs> either way, Feel free just to give, give $50, $100, $1,000, whatever the Lord puts on your heart, $10, $25, all of it will go to the family. Amen? Amen. All right. Lord, we ask just a blessing over this word this morning and over this very heavy topic as we are going to discuss depression today. God, I pray for your grace. As I was studying through this and I was looking at the complexity of the human psyche and just the complexity of the makeup of how you created us, I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to communicate all of this? But, Lord, I just pray that you would bring a touch over it. And, Lord, you would take what's needed for those that are sitting in your your church today and you would multiply it to their needs. God, we commit it to you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, one last caveat before I get into the word. Uh, I'm going to be speaking about depression today. I'm gonna be talking about depression. Now, as I speak about depression, I'm gonna talk about seasons or bouts of depression today. I'm gonna speak about a few kingdom principles when you go through a season of depression that you need to put in place of your life to minimize the amount of damage that can come from it and to help you be able to get out of it. Now, with that said, Next week, because there was just so much that came out of the study, there'll be a two-part sermon together. Next week, I'm going to speak more on this, but I'm going to deal more on mental health issues as a whole. So you might know somebody that has mental health issues or yourself have gone through it. The things that I'm going to share today will apply to that, but I'm going to speak directly to it next week if that begins to make sense. And I say all that to say as well, if you deal with mental health or you, you struggle with it, can I just say there is no no shame in that whatsoever we got to realize that we have been created as spiritual beings we've been created as emotional beings mental beings physical beings and if somebody came out of the womb without a leg or had a disability we don't shame them for that the same thing if it happens in our mental state our emotional state as well and we have to recognize the complexity of the human creation does that make sense that makes sense. Okay, with all that said, let's get into it together, and we're going to get into 1 Kings chapter 19, and I'm going to read just verses 1 through 14, so follow with me here. Very, very famous passage of Scripture. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around. And there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore through the mountains, tore them apart, and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now... They're trying to kill me too. You know, I love this story of Elijah the prophet. And one of the reasons I love it so much is because when you read through the Bible, sometimes we find it kind of difficult to really empathize with or see ourselves in some of the characters, right? You think about David for a moment and how he comes and he hears Goliath taunting the Israelites. And this little boy runs up to King Saul. and What does he do? He says, hey, don't worry about this thug. I'll go out there. Just a teenage boy. I don't need any shield. I don't need any armor. I don't need any of that stuff. I'll go out with a robe and sandals. I don't, I don't even have my Nikes. I'll just go out with these sandals and I'll take a sling and some stones and I'll take this guy out. And you think in your mind, yeah, if that was me, probably not, right? That's not who I would be in the story. I'd be the Israelite up on the cliff, probably peeing himself and, and shaking in my boots. That's that's who I would be, right? Or you think about Moses who leads all the the Israelites out from Pharaoh and he's coming to the Red Sea and they're enclosed and he doesn't know what to do and he looks back and here are the Egyptians with thousands of chariots coming on horseback ready to take them out and he goes and prays and then he comes back and he says, hey guys, don't worry. God told me we just need to stand still and we will see his salvation. I'm thinking in my mind, like, yeah, if that was me and I was Moses, I'd probably come back and say something like, listen, I know what God said, but let's not be honest. Look at what's about to happen. Most of us are probably going to die, so you stand still. And then it's every man for himself. I'm going to get swimming. that's, That's who I would be in the story. But then you read this passage and you start to think, ah, Elijah, for the first time, is a guy that's a lot like me. I I see myself in this guy. Because if you read between the lines, watch what Elijah is doing. He's going up to the priest of Baal, and you know what he's saying? This is what he's saying. My God is better than your God. You ever evangelized before? Right? I mean, that's exactly where we go. I'm better than, and, and then he takes it a step further. He says, my God could kick your God's butt. Not only kick his butt, but he'll wipe the floor with your God. He'll take your God out. And for the first time, there's someone in the Bible that's actually doing something that you can say, that's, I can see myself doing that. Yeah, that's me, right? And as we continue to read through it, we go on to chapter 18, and I didn't read it here, but we begin to get somewhat of a picture from the Bible of what actually takes place on Mount Carmel, when the showdown actually happens. And the scriptures tell us that, that Elijah is sitting there, and just like we would do, he starts taunting the prophets of Baal. He's like, all right, your God's got to be sleeping, right? Maybe you got to wake him up. Maybe you got, like, I'm like, yeah, I'm totally with this guy. This guy is awesome. But it goes on, and it says, then he repairs the altar. Then he gets the sacrifice ready and he puts it on the altar. Then he prays and God comes down with a fireball, right? And what does he do? He consumes the sacrifice. He burns up the rocks. He licks up the water. He burns a hole into the ground. Everybody falls down with heat prostration and just starts worshiping Jehovah. They start worshiping God. And if that was enough, the Bible goes on to tell us, then Elijah goes off into a corner of the mountain by himself and he begins to pray. he doesn't just pray once he doesn't pray twice or three he prays and prays and prays and prays until a storm begins to rise up out of the sea and then it comes and it waters the land that's been in drought for years Then if that wasn't enough, Elijah, who's so pumped up from what just happened because he saw the miracles of God, the fire fall down, he was right. He brought the challenges to the prophets of Baal and he showed them what was up, right? He's got so much juice and adrenaline running through him. He's got like 12 Red Bulls. He's ready to go. He looks at his servant and said, I I can't just go home like this. I got to go for a jog. I got to get some of this energy out. So he starts going for a jog and if it wasn't enough, the spirit of God comes down on him, right? And then he starts running faster and he's running faster and he's running faster and he's running faster, until he is now outrunning the very chariots of Ahab, which was like the Ferrari of the day. He's outrunning Ferraris in his bare feet, in his sandals. That's what this guy is doing. And then chapter 18 begins to conclude with Elijah making the decision, as he's outrunning the chariots, to head out to Jezreel which was the capital city of Israel at the time. Now, now this is the part. Up to this part, I can empathize with Elijah. I feel like I, a lot of him, a lot of me, I could see myself in him, but this is the part that I begin to lose, and I'm going to tell you why. Because Jezebel, after this, just a few verses before and after, she actually makes an oath and says... I am going to kill this guy. He isn't going to make it until tomorrow. And Elijah knows what it's like to be under murderous threats because he went hiding years prior, before the showdown on Mount Carmel, from Ahab and Jezebel because they wanted to harm him even back then. And now he knows that their resolve is greater than ever before, and he makes the decision to go to Jezreel, which is the capital city which is the one place, watch this, where he would be most exposed. It's the one place he would be most recognized. And it's the one place if he got caught, he would never be able to get out. And I think to myself, what was Elijah doing? What was going through his head? And as I pray and I read and I looked at commentaries and I went through all these things, I began to realize, you know what was happening? Elijah truly believed inside of his heart even though Jezebel was breathing out all of these threats, that because of what happened on Mount Carmel and the way God came down, that it was only a matter of time before Ahab and Jezebel finally repented and they would see a renewed spiritual revival in the nation of Israel. And if that didn't happen, I truly believe that he believed in all of his heart that what the people of Israel actually saw on Mount Carmel, the fact that they fell down and began to worship Jehovah and kill all the prophets, that if Ahab and Jezebel didn't repent, that they would rise up They would throw them off. They would cause a mutiny. They would protect Elijah and they would re-consecrate their lives to God. That's the only thing that could be going through this guy's head. And you know what's amazing? After everything Elijah did, after mustering up all his bravery, his courage, his faith, to begin to start a move of God, get this, I want you to hear this, Nothing happened. Nothing. Nothing happened after all his prayers. Nothing happened after all his fasting. Nothing happened after he called one miracle after another miracle after another miracle miracle down from the heavens of God. Nothing happened even when he outrun the chariots of Ahab and Ahab watched him just blow right by. Nothing happened. you know what Elijah's really feeling? Because I know what it's like. I got no more tricks to pull out of the bag. I'm out. I don't know what else to do. When you call fire down from heaven and it literally consumes the water on the ground and everything else, when you go and you pray a storm into existence for a nation to turn back to God, when you're out running chariots, let me tell you, there's no, where else do you go from that? What's act two? He's like, I got nothing left. And it didn't change a single thing. And Elijah, because there was an unmet expectation and an understanding about God, listen to me, he begins to fall into a depression. He becomes despondent. And then he wanders off into the wilderness and ultimately continues his journey all the way to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb, and I want you to get this because this is important, had another name in the Bible as well. Mount Horeb was actually Mount Sinai. And that's extremely important in the story. And I'm going to use this just as a foundation and a background. Why is that so important, Pastor Michael? Because Mount Sinai is where Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God. And when Moses was up on the mountain to meet with God, out of the abundance of his heart, what did Moses say? I want to see you. I want to see your glory. I want to know who you are. And the fact that this is the place that Elijah is directed by the angel of God to go begins to show us something that's actually happening in his heart as we're reading through the story when he fell into a place of depression. See, I want you to get this. Elijah was confused. He was confused about his life. He was confused about what was going on in his nation. He was confused about what was happening to the people of God. And the confusion was so overwhelming that it got to a point where in his heart, he didn't even know who the Lord was anymore. He didn't know what, who is this God that I serve? that I've been serving so faithfully, right? And the fact that the angel directs him to Mount Horeb, the fact that he's showing him to go there, he's saying this is the place that in the past, the people of God, Moses, the leader of God's people, the prophet back then was able to receive a revelation of God's glory. And you need to go there. You need to vent your confusion. You need to vent your frustration. And you need a new revelation of who God is so you can understand who this God is that you actually serve. Has anyone ever felt like Elijah over the past two years? (laughs) Honestly, God, what in the world are you doing, right? Where are you? Why are you allowing this injustice and this lawlessness just to continue? Don't you see what's going on underneath? Don't you see what's happening to our children? Don't you see what we're dealing with even in the church? Haven't you heard all our prayers? We've been gathering in this place every Wednesday. We've been seeking the face of God. We have fasted. We have repented. We have sought you. We've got serious about our relationship with God. Wait, what? Don't you see what we're doing? Don't you see what's happening to your own people? And suddenly, because you go through that for such a long season, there comes this thing inside all our hearts that says, I don't know if I even know the God that I've been serving all these years. I thought, if I prayed this way, I, I, I thought, if I, if I honored his word, I, I, thought, I thought that this is what happens. Uh, A plus B was always supposed to equal C. And that didn't take place. And you have to understand, through the unmet expectations that we're all dealing with, And through the lawlessness that is just abounding in our society that's encroaching on all of us everywhere we go, there are circumstances and situations that are beginning to arise in our families. They're beginning to arise in our own personal walks with God. They're beginning to arise in the places of our church. And these situations and these circumstances are beginning to lead us in some of the same places where Elijah ended up, in places of despondency and sometimes, listen to me, in places of even depression. You know what's amazing about this story? It's the fact that Elijah was the prophet of the day. Think about it, on the Mount Transfiguration, he's one of the guys that shows up with Jesus. and hey, Moses, this is like the guy. And this is a man of prayer. This guy, he knew how to pray. This is a man who knew how to fast. This is a man who knew miracles. He knew how to bring miracles down from heaven. He knew the power of God. And yet this man, the prophet, the guy of the Old Testament, the one that ends up in the mountain transfiguration, the Bible tells us that he fell into a place of serious depression. What does that show us? You want to know what it shows us? It can happen to any one of us. Anyone. Don't think that, oh, I'm stronger than that. I got the mental capacity. No, it can happen. Under the right circumstances, it can hit any one of us. And it doesn't matter how closely you walk with the Lord. It doesn't make any difference. In fact, listen to me. It's those who walk closest with the Lord that are going to deal with serious doubts and oppression, possibly more than anyone else. Why? Because you have a sensitivity to his heart and you see things that not everybody else sees. I got hit this last summer in June. Many of you know I caught COVID, you got the email, shared a little bit with you. I got very sick, COVID really took me out. But when I was fighting through all of that, something just snapped inside of me. I went through such a serious oppression that ultimately led to a very serious depression where I felt unable to do anything. I mean, utterly and completely hopeless. I felt unable to pastor this church. I felt unable to be a good husband to my wife. I felt unable to be able to father my own children. I felt completely hopeless. I went down into a dark hole emotionally and psychologically and listen to me, at the time, I didn't think I was ever gonna come back. It was that severe. I was dealing with panic attacks. I was dealing with fears. I'd ball up in the bed and I'd moan uncontrollably and I had no ability to hold back the anguish that was just flowing out of my heart. I couldn't stop it. I was like a three year old just mumbling. And it was so bad that my wife would come by my side not knowing what to do. She would just give me NyQuil to try to knock me out. She says if I could just get him to go to sleep he won't be tormented all of his day. And she would put me to sleep but when I went to sleep i get plagued with nightmares. I didn't have nightmares, but suddenly I had nightmares. And I'd have nightmares where I'd see myself in a mental institution as my kids would grow up without me and come visit me maybe once a year. And if it wasn't enough, if it wasn't that nightmare, it was a suggestive nightmare for me to take my own life to commit suicide. I have never been in a place like that in my whole life. And the thing is, because I was sleeping, because I was knocked out from the NyQuil, I couldn't wake up. I couldn't wake up. So my wife would just watch me as I would roll around in the bed, and I'd moan and yell in my sleep and cry. And she was unable to get me up, so she would just sit by my side. She would sit there, put her arm on me, and she would just pray. She would just pray, God, you got to bring them through. God, you got to bring a touch. God, you got to do something in the midst of this. At the very beginning of the depression, God gave me a promise. He gave me Psalm 40, where it says that he picked me up and he pulled me out of a miry pit and he set my feet on the rock. And I felt like God was saying something to me very specific before before I started going down deep. I felt like God saying, you're about to go through a very serious time in your own walk with me. It's gonna be a very deep depression. It's gonna be a despondency deeper than you've ever been. But don't be afraid. I'm gonna be there with you through it. I'm gonna walk you through and I'm gonna get you to the other side. I'm I'm gonna pull you out. Your feet are gonna get on the rock. You're gonna be able to get there, Michael. And I remembered as I was going through this, my study time in 1 Kings chapter 19. I remembered everything I was going through before I actually caught COVID. And when I was going through it, God gave me three specific things, three kingdom principles. And I want you to get this, that when you deal with depression, if you will be willing to implement, you'll take those steps of faith on these three things that even in the midst of depression, you will find God's grace, his healing, and his provision in a way like you couldn't even imagine it. In fact, if you will implement these three things when you deal with a bout of depression, it will minimize the amount of collateral damage that can come from it. And it will set you up in a place to be able to receive a healing and a touch from God, just like Psalm 40. In fact, let me give you the first thing. There's three. I'm only gonna get to two today because I just have so much to begin to debrief with you through what I've walked through and what the scriptures have to say. But number one, let me put it on the screen and I want you to see this. Number one, never, never isolate yourself. 1 Kings chapter 19, let me read verses 3 through 5 again. It says, Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush, and he fell asleep. It's amazing because the Bible tells us that Elijah is confused, he's overwhelmed, he's spiritually depleted, but it isn't until he breaks with his servant, until he makes the willful choice to push away all fellowship and all community and then go into a place of isolation that he goes from the place of confusion and depression to thinking and contemplating death. It compounded what he was walking through. It compounded it. This happened even to John the Baptist. When did John the Baptist begin questioning whether Jesus was the Messiah? When he was isolated in a prison cell. He knew who Jesus was was when he was around fellowship and community and his servants and his disciples. But when the enemy got him isolated, when he cut off from that fellowship, suddenly he's doubting who Jesus is. You'll see it again and again and again in scripture. When you isolate yourself, you're a sitting duck to depression, to confusion, and to the enemy. Now, with all that said, I'm going to do just a quick sidetrack, just kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail because I want you to see this and I want you to recognize this truth. No matter how low Elijah got, no matter how depressed he was, even though he wanted to die, he never felt like he ever had the right to take his own life. He doesn't say, I'm going to kill myself. He says, no, 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 God, if it's your will, would you kill me? That is a big difference. And it's something we as all Christians need to contemplate and really think about. I'm going to go into that maybe more next week and talk more about that and bring that out. But just something for us to kind of write down and take a note of. But let me go back to my point. He's isolated. And watch how God begins to bring Elijah out of the pit. This is amazing because I want you to see this. The first thing he does in his infinite wisdom, is he sends an angel. (laughs) That's not how I would have wrote the story. I would have wrote the story, he got under the baptism of the Spirit of God. I would have wrote the story, tongues of fire came down on him. And he was slain in the spirit and he got off. And I'm not, I'm not listen, I'm not poking fun of any of that stuff. That's important stuff in the Christian journey. That's important stuff in the Christian walk. And I'll preach about that. I'll get up here and I'll tell you you need the spirit. And I'm not diminishing any of that. But that's not how God works in this measure. No, no, no. He doesn't do it through a lightning bolt. He does it through wisdom. There's a difference. Because the Holy Spirit is wisdom as well, by the way right? So he brings wisdom. What does he do? He brings an angel. And he doesn't just bring an angel. I want you to see this. He brings an angel that brings a touch to Elijah. And it isn't just one touch. He comes back and the Bible says he touches him again. It's not not once. It's a continual touch of community and fellowship when the man was in a place of isolation and severe depression. Well, what's your point, Pastor Michael? My point is this. When God comes to minister to a severely depressed individual, one of the ways he begins to help and heal that person is through the touch of community. And I'm going to say this. You ready? When you're depressed, that's the last thing you want. I don't want to be near anybody. I don't want anyone to come find me. I don't want anyone. That's normal. That's the natural inclination and the bent of the human heart when you deal with a time of depression. My wife, oh, bless her heart. I'm going to embarrass her a little bit. I call her my battleship because every time I'm going through something or the family's going through something, she always comes to the rescue and she fights until we see the victory. I, I, I call her my USS Beth. United States ship Beth, that's who she is. She is such a blessing to our family. But when I started going through the season of depression, one of the first things that my wife did is she called the elders. Now listen, I wasn't gonna call the elders. I wasn't gonna call anybody. But she got on the phone and she called the elders, and I'll never forget, there was a night around midnight or one in the morning, and I was being plagued with the nightmares. They were hitting me, and I was groaning, and I was screaming, and I was crying. I was broken. You gotta realize, I dropped 15 pounds during COVID. I didn't eat anything. I had no electrolytes in my body. I couldn't even get any water down. I was such a mess. I was emotionally broken. I was physically broken. I was spiritually broken. I could hold nothing back. I was just weeping, wailing. I was overwhelmed. And I'll never forget it, is I'm having the episode and I wake up. Guess who's sitting by my bedside? It's Elder Billy and Elder Anthony. One o'clock in the morning, these two guys are sitting by my bedside. And they couldn't speak any reason to me. I was, I was literally manic. There was nothing they could do. I was all over the map. I had no electrolytes. I was physically, I, there was no, I hadn't slept in days. I hadn't slept in days. And they're looking at me, but you know what they did? They just sat there, they listened, and they prayed, and they stayed there until I was able to fall back asleep. And then they went downstairs. They sat in my living room and prayed over the house while Beth went back to bed, and they stayed there till the morning to make sure that we were all right. Oh, well, it didn't stop there. You think that would have been enough but then the next day I wake up and I'm going through another episode and I'm dealing with something Beth hands me the phone she goes here I go what is this she goes just answer it I said I don't want to answer it but I could already hear from the phone in my hand even though it wasn't against my ear Nikki Cruz was on the other line my wife called Nikki why she was gone why he's out on the crusades and he's saying Michael Michael he's yelling at me from the phone right so I finally put it to my ear he goes Michael what is going on and I, I can't speak. I'm just overwhelmed. So I'm just crying. I don't know. I'm a <laughs> Michael, Michael, stop it. You are a man of God. You're, and he's just going off on the phone, off on the phone. And, and the crazy part is, as he's speaking to me, people are like walking by in the crusade, different pastors and ministers. And he's just yelling at them. Pray for my pastor, Michael. He's a mess right now. What's going on? You don't need to know. He's a man of God. Just pray for God to touch him right now. you pray. You'll pray. You'll pray. And I'm listening as he's, he's literally directing everybody to just pray for me at the crusade. He sits on the phone with me a little bit. He prays over me, oh man, I was going through such torment. An hour later, Beth comes in with an iPad. I said, what is this? She said, just answer it, just get on it and answer it. And it's Pastor Neil, my good friend, my pastor friend from Geneva in Switzerland. And he's sitting there on the iPad with me and I can't even talk, I'm just crying. And as I'm crying and I'm so overwhelmed and he could see the hopelessness in my heart, he begins just to weep on the other end. He says, Michael, I've never seen you like this. I said, I don't know what's going on. He said, just talk, just talk. I talked. He prayed with me. After that, I get another phone call the next day. She was FaceTiming Pastor Nick over in Ireland, one of my pastor mentors, right? He calls over. He gets on the phone. He's talking with me. He's helping me. He's giving me some direct, Michael, you need to eat. You need to drink. Sounds like my mom, like he's going through all these things, right? He's telling me what I need to do and, and he's literally looking to see if he can get tickets to come fly out to make sure that I was okay. He wanted to come visit me because he knew how overwhelmed I was, right? And then if that wasn't enough, then my wife actually calls Joe Couch from our church, a good friend of mine, and she tells him what I'm going through. I was, again, I'm not going to tell anybody anything. I don't want, I don't want to see anyone. And she calls Joe Couch and he shows up at my door and he comes and he gets me. And at this point, I literally am an invalid. And I don't mean to say that lightly or make fun of anybody, but I have no electrolytes. I have not eaten a day. I have not slept. I, I literally could barely walk. I'm in my pajamas. I'm just moaning, moaning like, ooh and he's getting me into the car so he could get me out of my surroundings and just take me for a drive. He drove me all the way back. My mom flew out to take care of us. He sat down. My mom gave us a meal together. He sat and made sure I ate. He prayed for me. He let me go back up into the bed. One after another, after another, after another, my wife called out. Now, let me just say this. Let me say this. I didn't want to talk to no one. When she handed me the phone, the first response was, hang up. The first response is, I want to cover my head and I don't want anybody around me. I don't want to see a single person. I was so embarrassed with what I was dealing with. I felt ashamed. I'm a pastor. You're not supposed to deal with this type of stuff. Right? You're supposed to have all your game together. I felt so weak and exposed. But you know what? Despite all those feelings and even the mountain of indifference that was in my heart through the depression, because you feel indifferent when you get depressed, I was saying to Beth, none of this stuff's going to work. And I'm a pastor! I'm like, yeah, none of the biblical principles are ever going to do a single thing. I dealt with so much unbelief that was echoing inside of me but I remember this story in First Kings chapter 19, what God was having me write down before I got COVID, before I got depressed. And this is the thing, I had a choice that I had to make. Do I go off how I feel, which is not a smart thing to do when you're dealing with a season of depression, or do I choose to embrace the wisdom of God and let people in? That's God's wisdom. That's how God works in a depressed life. And I made the choice by the grace of God to let people in. See, one of the reasons God always provides fellowship and friendship to someone who is suffering from depression is to give them a source of discernment and judgment during that dark time when it's hard to make good decisions for themselves and for other people around them. Let me read that again, because I want you to get that. One of the reasons God always provides fellowship and friendship to someone who's suffering from depression is to give them a source of discernment and judgment during that dark time when it's hard to make good decisions for themselves and for other people around them. Now, let me just backtrack before I kind of expound on that a little bit. When I say you need to open your life up to community and fellowship and people, you don't do that just to anybody. You don't go out and find like the next door neighbor who's walking the dog, who you never talked to your whole life, say, man, I'm a mess. I just need you to come and bring me comfort. That, that's not what you do. You don't like, you're not in the grocery store saying you'll do, you'll do, you do. No, 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 no. You only open up to trusted people that God has put in your life, a family and friends that have proven themselves over the years that really love you. But when you have those people and God provides them for everybody, you open your heart to them. You, you, you embrace God's wisdom in his depression. You embrace it and say yes, right? Okay, with all that said, turn me to 1 Samuel chapter 3, and let me read to you verse 1 through 8. Let's talk about discernment and judgment and why God gives us fellowship and friends and dark seasons of our lives. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. Let me read it to you. It said, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, There were not many visions. Pay attention to that. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was laying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back and lie down. So he went and laid down. Again, the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli, said, I didn't call you. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy, so Eli told Samuel, go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and laid down in his place. Now look at what the Bible's actually showing us here in 1 Samuel chapter three. The passage is actually telling us that this is a season in Samuel's life where the word of God was very rare. There wasn't a lot of revelation from the Lord, and let me tell you something. When you go through about a bout of depression, I want you to understand this. Because you're dealing with such an exhaustion in your emotions and in your mental capacities, sometimes it's very difficult to be able to hear God's voice for yourself. The word of God becomes very rare in that season. Right? In fact, the only voices you normally hear are all the accusations that are just rising up in your heart against you and all the lies of the enemy, all the anxiousness, the fears, the what-ifs. Those are the voices you begin to hear. And those voices begin to drown out the voice of God, where it kind of disappears for a season. You, you, you have no judgment. You have no objectivity. It, it's just not a reality. And even though God's voice can break in sometimes, kind of like a ray of sunshine that breaks through the clouds of a storm, over time, those clouds can regather again and you fall back into the hopeless one more time. That's normal when you're dealing with and going through a very depressed state. So what should we do? What should we do, Pastor Michael? If I can't hear the voice of God clearly and there's all this stuff going on, what do I do? Well, we follow the example of Samuel. What do I mean? Watch this, watch this. God calls to Samuel and what does he do? He immediately runs and says, what is it, Eli? Pay attention to that. God calls to Samuel and then he immediately runs over and says, what is it, Eli? Which means this, Samuel thought that God's voice sounded like Eli's voice. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was woken up in the middle of the night by an audible voice from God, I don't know if I would mix it up with the senile old man that's sleeping next to me. I don't know if that's what would happen, but that's what Samuel does. And it's not just happening because it's a nice narrative in scripture. It is showing us another kingdom principle that we need to be aware of. And let me put it on the screen. You just take a picture, write this down. Let me show you something many times when you're in a season when it's hard to hear and discern God's voice, many times God's voice will sound a lot like the trusted people that God has surrounded you with. I wanna read that again. That's good. That's good, Pastor Michael. Okay. Many times when you're in a season where it's hard to hear and discern God's voice, many times God's voice will sound a lot like the trusted people that God has surrounded you with. When the elders came to my house and we had a meeting and I just shared my heart of what I was going through and Beth was there, Elder Gary looked at me and he said this, he said, Michael, would you be willing to give up all decision-making responsibilities and your authority for the church and for yourself as a pastor for the up and coming weeks while you get better and you deal with this bout of depression? Would you hand that all over to us. Let us make the decisions for you. And I thank God because out of my study time and what I was preparing before I got sick by the grace of God, I said, here, it's yours. You could take it. I, I don't want it right now. I don't think I'm in a good place to be able to have it. And they ultimately made the decision, listen to me, when I would return to the pulpit, how long I was going to take off, what my schedule was going to be like when I got back, how many meetings I was gonna take on. They decided my whole schedule, they figured it out. And you know what? I thank God for it. You know why? Because when you go through those types of bouts, it is so difficult for you to actually think clearly. It's almost impossible. You feel guilty because you weren't at the church enough. So what you do is you forfeit your own health, you put that on a line, and then you come to the church and you're not fully healed. You get up at a pulpit and you're not fully there. Your heart's not right. You're slamming people left and right from the pulpit because you're exhausted or overwhelmed. You didn't actually take the time because you're in the midst of the battle and you can't objectively see it from the 30,000 foot view. You're just seeing the emotions that are going on in your heart, the confusion that's happening inside of your head, and you make decisions accordingly. So you end up making those decisions, but a week later, a month later, even a few, few months later, a year later, there's catastrophic issues that start to arise because they weren't the right decisions in the first place. Not only did I give the elders that that liberty, and I asked them to do that, but I talked to a close friend of mine along with my wife, and this is what I said to the two of them, you are now my wisdom for the next couple weeks. Any decision that I have to make outside of church responsibilities, I'm running it through you. And you guys are the ones that are gonna help me find sound judgment with God. And I thank God for it. Guys, you had to see me. You had to understand I hadn't eaten, I hadn't slept, there's no electrolytes. I'm weeping all night. The enemy is having a field day. I mean, there was days I didn't feel like I put enough money. I was being so accused that I didn't put enough money in the kids' college funds. So I'm like grabbing furniture. I'm grabbing my motorcycles and putting them on the sidewalk saying, Come and buy, come and buy. I need to help my family. My wife is looking like, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know. I just need to get the enemy off my back. And she's looking at me, this isn't the right decision. And she said, let me make those decisions for you. No. Go inside. I even talked to a friend about some decisions I was making. He says, you have to wait two or three months until you're out of this before you can pull the trigger on that. You're not allowed to make that right now. And I surrendered. I surrendered that authority. I surrendered that ability to them. And it was the best thing I ever did in my life. They decided if I needed to go to counseling. They decided if I needed medication. I didn't make those decisions myself. I listened to other people that God had placed in my life. I listened. I took the touch of the community and the fellowship that he provided in his wisdom to help me lead and direct me through a very dark time. All right, number two. Number one. That was just point one. Never, never, never isolate yourself. In God's wisdom... How did he begin to minister and heal Elijah? He brought a touch through an angel. He brought community, he brought fellowship. And in that community and fellowship, he began to heal him and give direction to him of where he was supposed to go next. He gave discernment and judgment. Number two, you ready? I want you to get this. Be careful to recognize the whole you. Oh, how important this is. Remember when Elijah falls down Remember when he cuts himself off from a servant, which was him quitting the ministry? Remember when he started to pray, asking God to take his life? How did God begin to minister to that man? How did he take him out of that pit? Well, we just said, number one, he sent an angel to bring a touch to him, right? But the angel didn't just bring a touch. He didn't just bring fellowship or community or judgment or discernment, although all those things are good. The angel did a second thing. Do you know what the angel did? Made him a cake. Cooked him some food. That's what the angel, right? Right? And I always tell people all the time, if there was ever any type of evidence that God was Italian, this is the scripture to tell you this is who he is. You're weeping, you're crying, you're overwhelmed, you want to give up on life, you're suicidal and he shows up and he's got some pasta in his hand and some meatballs, say, this will make it better, this, this will be good for you, right? It's so weird to me because the first thing the angel does is bake him a cake. You think think when an angel shows up in the Old Testament, he would have showed up in a glory cloud, right? You think the angel would have said something really spiritual, really religious, say something like, Elijah, fear not. Elijah, thou shalt repent. Elijah, remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He thus says this to you. And the angel doesn't do any of that. I think that's hilarious. The angel doesn't bring any of those things that we think an angel is supposed to do. Instead, the angel comes down, he brings a touch to Elijah, he brings fellowship and community, he sits in his presence, and then he cooks him a meal. It sounds like an Italian grandmother. It sounds like this is is grandma coming down from heaven. This is what this is. But do you see it? If you read the passage and you plot yourself, do you see what it's really saying? See, we're Pentecostals here, which are so, we, listen, I love Pentecostalism. I am down with the Holy Spirit. I pray to the Holy Spirit, I pray in the Spirit, I pray for heal. I do. But sometimes, because we're so Pentecostal, we don't actually see the scripture for what it's really saying. We see it through the lens of Pentecostalism. So all we're looking for is the next part of the miracle, the fire, whatever. We wanna to get to that part, and we're not seeing what it's actually saying in between. Do you see it? Well, you might be saying, see what? Do you see the wisdom of God that manifests itself in this angel? Do you see that through his actions, do you know what he's telling Elijah? He's saying, Elijah, you're tired. Elijah, you don't need to worry about revival right now. You don't know that you need to go into another 12 hour prayer meeting. You don't need to quote to me the Torah again. You don't need to worry about even your ministry. You know what you need to do right now? You need to rest. You are worn out. You just went through one of the most intense spiritual battles that have ever recorded in the pages of Scripture. Your expectation and what you thought that was going to happen didn't happen, and your heart is hurt. But all of this has taken not just a spiritual and emotional toll on you, all of this has taken a physical toll on you as well. Now, what does it mean? Now, hear me on this, and I mean this lovingly. It means that God is not like a lot of Christians who see a depressed person and immediately they think it's only a spiritual issue. <sighs> yes, most likely it's partly spiritual. That's true. It's most likely. And do we need to bathe the person in prayer and bathe the depression? Absolutely. But we have to remember all the time that we're not just spiritual beings. We are physical, emotional, psychological beings as well. That the complexity of, of the human makeup is much greater than sometimes we like to give credit for. And when we kind of reduce everything down, we boil it down to just one aspect of our life and, and creation itself, what we're doing is, is we're not really dealing with reality because that's not all of how God made it. There's so many other pieces and parts to the puzzle that we have to start paying attention to. Many believers, when they deal with someone who's depressed, and I say this lovingly, they automatically respond with, you don't pray enough. It's a lack of faith. You have to confess some hidden sin. You have to rebuke the devil. You haven't pleaded the blood over life. You don't worship and thank God. Now, could part of the depression be some of that? Yeah. But could part of depression not be some of that? Oh yeah, oh yeah. They go right down the spiritual religious list. But what Christians should do, and I want you to hear this, is they should learn sometimes to listen and pray for spiritual wisdom of what's really going on. Not just jump to our preconceived notions or our Christian backgrounds and what they've taught us even in the past, because sometimes it's so one sided. But to pray, God, would you give me wisdom? When you showed up to Elijah, you didn't send a lightning bolt. You didn't just come down and just through the power of your hand just pick him up. You met him with wisdom, supernatural wisdom. You brought the touch, you brought the angel, you brought the food, you brought him on a journey. You, you, you did so much more than just this idea if I could just get you slain, you're gonna be fine. Although I'm not against that. I love slaying people in the spirit. I'm, I'll do that after service. I'm Italian. We love pushing people over. We, we love, and I don't mean that to be light. I'm just being honest. I'm down with you. I'm with you. You're my peeps, right? I'm just saying we have to be careful that we just don't end it right there and say that was it because a lot of people will leave sometimes and we really didn't deal with the issue. There was more there that God wanted to reveal if we took the time to listen and pray for the spiritual wisdom and the direction of where he wanted us to go. See, Elijah had a physical nature. He lived in a physical world. And at the moment, he didn't need prayer. He didn't need a lecture. He didn't need another sermon. You know what he needed? He needed a meal. And he needed to go back to sleep. Isn't it amazing that the angel lets him go back to sleep? (laughs) Like The angel wakes him up. And then he goes back to sleep and the angel's like, no, we can wait, we can wait, you're exhausted. Rest again, eat another meal, eat again, and then I'm going to take you on a journey. But this is what's needed at this very moment. Isn't that, doesn't that blow your mind away? Think about the infinite wisdom of God. It's so amazing. It's so glorious. See, when I was on the phone with Nikki. I was on the phone with Pastor Nick and I met with the elders. You know what every one of them said to me? Said, Michael, you were going way too hard and you were approaching burnout before COVID ever hit. Normally Beth and I set up two vacations in the year. We set up one in February, January, after the first fast of the year with the church, we head out with our family. But this year, because Landon just wasn't doing well in school, we didn't think we could take the kids out. So we decided we would wait and we would go all the way to June and we would take an extended vacation in June. I thought that was wise, but I never took any time off. And I came through the year with COVID. I came through the year with the elections. I came through the year with staff evaluations. I came, there was so much that was going on that I was just getting hit from every side, leading the prayer meetings, going through the fasting, going through the repenting time with you, all necessary, all right, all good. But I wasn't paying attention to what type of toll it was taking on me physically, not just spiritually or emotionally. And I was running myself so ragged that when the elders sat down with me and they made their first decision, this was the decision made, you're gonna take a minimum of six weeks away from the church. Six weeks. You are not to pick up a phone. You're not to send out an email. You're not to even check in how the church is doing. You could pray for the church, and we're even going to put a stopgap on that. Five minutes a day, that's it. No, they didn't do that. But I'm just saying, I, I just, I tried to show. They said you have to disconnect from all of it. And for the next six weeks, this is what they said to me you need to sleep in, you need to get plenty of food and rest and you need to be with your family. That's what they said to me. And I'm gonna tell you something. When they said it, and elders, I love you. I don't mean to demean you in any way, but I'm just gonna be honest what's going through my head. I listened, but then I went up to my room and thought that was the stupidest bit of device I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) I don't need to slow down. I need to go. I need to get up. God, you gotta heal me. I gotta, come on, we got things to do. The nation is falling apart. I'm the savior of the world, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah. You think I don't go through the complex? I got to save all of you. I got to save the world. I got to save the nation. I got to save all these things. So, so I'm gonna play saying, I got to get going, rest. Rest sounds like, sounds weak. It sounds, it doesn't sound spiritual. It, it, that's not something Christians do. We fast, we pray more, we read more, but we don't rest. We don't physically rest, right? And you know what's amazing? After I took the six weeks, I took an extra week. I took seven weeks away from the pulpit. But when I come back, can I be honest with you? I've never felt this good in my whole life. I came back and I was smiling everywhere. I even said to myself, why am I smiling? Why, I, I'm Italian, I'm from New Jersey, there's nothing. No, no, we don't smile, but I couldn't stop. There was so much joy that was flowing out of my spiritual life because I made the choice to take care of my physical life. Do you see how interconnected they actually are? And I'm walking around and I'm meeting with the staff. The staff's like, we've never seen you like this. When there was problems coming in from the church, it would just roll right off my back. I'd pray about it. I'd seek God about it. But it wasn't taking me out. I had so much strength. I had so much vitality. I had so much spiritual gusto. All because I took time, listen to me, just to physically rest. Now, I know you can't take six weeks. I'm not saying you need to take six weeks off. But sometimes when you're dealing with about a depression, sometimes when you're dealing, sometimes what you need, listen to me, is to get up late on a Saturday morning. You need to just sleep in. You need to find the time to do it. Sometimes it's a warning sign to take a vacation that's much needed now instead of later. Sometimes what you need is not more prayer. And I know what you're thinking, Pastor Michael, how can you say, trust me, I will get up here and rail for prayer and you will hear me. There'll be a balance to all of this. I'll come back the other way. But, but sometimes you don't need another prayer meeting. Sometimes you need to go up in the mountains, you need to take a hike, and you need to sit down and read a book. And you need to spend some time just in devotion with God instead of intercession with God. Do you see what I'm trying to say when I'm trying? And I know we're all thinking, well, that just sounds dumb. But remember, that's how God ministered to Elijah. He brought him an Italian meal. That was Italian when we get up there. He brought him spaghetti and meatballs. He brought him cake. He brought him bread. He said, this is where we have to start. But God takes it even further. I know you're thinking you're gonna close. I'm closing. Not only does God begin to treat Elijah's depression with community and physical rest, but then he brings him to Mount Horeb and while Elijah is there, this is amazing, God begins to ask him questions. Anyone else think this is weird? God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And let me just tell you something. God never asks a question because he needs information. He wasn't like up on Mount Horeb and then like Elijah showed said, like, oh, Elijah, what are you doing here? Like. That's not God. He wasn't like, I didn't know you were coming. Like, I, I would have got something ready. No, not at all. God doesn't ask a question because he needs information. God asks a question because we need information. That's how it works. And you know what's amazing to me? He asks a question, and then if you read through the rest of those verses, and this is what blows me away, he doesn't say a single thing, God. He just lets Elijah speak and vent. Elijah says, I'm the last one of your prophets. They killed her. No, that wasn't true. But God didn't interject to say, ah, oh, no, no, you're not the last one of the prophets. I got a bunch of prophets. He waits. He lets him vent. He lets him, listen to this, process. You know what God is showing us? That not only are we emotional beings and physical beings and spiritual beings, we're psychological beings as well. Sometimes we got to talk through things and we have to process through them with somebody else. Isn't that amazing what God does? He's saying, no, 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 no. And I can just imagine the angels are just rolling their eyes. Just tell him what's going on. No, 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 no. Let him talk. Let him talk. I, let him talk. He needs this right now. He needs to speak through it. He needs somebody to speak objectively to him. He's got to vent what's going on in his heart. He's got to let out all the frustration, the confusion. It's got to go. It's got to begin to blow somewhere. It's got to go. And listen to me, sometimes when you walk through a season of depression, I know this, a lot of Christians don't like this word, but this is the truth. One of the best things you could do is go and get a little bit of counseling. We all say, well, that's not the spiritual answer. That's not faith. That's not this. That's not... No, no, no. You are a psychological being. You have things going on in your mind that you got to speak through. You got to work out. And if you don't do it, it will wreck you no matter how many touches God brings. You you could get one touch after another touch after another touch, but until you start dealing with that and still you process through some of the trauma that you've experienced in your past, some of the trauma that you're experiencing now, some of the things that you're going through, if you don't go through that, if you don't actually speak psychologically, you're never going to be okay. And that is gonna reflect in your spiritual life. That is gonna reflect in your mental life. That is gonna reflect in your emotional life. It's all, do you see how it's all interconnected? This is my whole point. Let me read it to you the way I wrote it. See, real depression cannot be reduced down to just one thing all the time. That is a trap. It is a trap. We have to be careful not to reduce it to just the spiritual where we tell everyone they must be in sin. That's why they're feeling down or they don't have enough faith. Be careful with that. But we also have to be careful not to reduce it down to just the psych- psychological, where we just listen to people talk and talk and talk, and we never speak any truth to them. At the same time, we have to be careful that we don't reduce it down to just the physical, where we say, just take a pill, and everything's gonna be okay. No. We live in a complex world, and we are complex creations, and many times the answer to depression is actually a many-sided approach where we're praying and listening to God for wisdom of what's really going on. Whew. See, Elijah had to go on a journey with God. Remember, God didn't just show up, touch him with a lightning bolt, and then he was out. He had to go on a journey. This was many days, This, this is months. He had to come with an angel and bring a touch of community and fellowship and begin to heal that area of his heart. He had to bring community to help him with his discernment and judgment as he goes on the journey with the Lord. He had to deal with his physical need because he was burnt out and he gave him a place of food. He brought him up on the side of Mount Horeb where he began to ask questions, and allow him to vent because psychologically he was overwhelmed. Do you see what God does? And it was a journey. See, all of us, we just want to come up. And I'm not saying prayer doesn't work. I will pray. And listen to me, I believe in miracles. I believe sometimes God just comes down and touches you and it's gone, it's over, it's done. I will believe that way and I'll pray that way. But the Bible bears witness that it doesn't always happen like that. And here's the reality. My theology, my doctrine has to line up with this doesn't line up with my Pentecostalism. doesn't line up with my baptism, uh, being a Baptist or a Protestant, whatever you want to call yourself. It doesn't line up with any of that. It's got to line up with this. And although I see God doing it through the supernatural and the miraculous, and I will pray that way and believe that way, sometimes, sometimes he chooses to take us on a journey because there's deeper things going on inside there that need greater healing and processing than just a touch and then walk out the door. And we need to go on that journey with the Lord. And here's the thing. We need to be willing to embrace that side of God and embrace his wisdom. Because when somebody's dealing with depression, that's how God shows up, with wisdom. Amen. Now next week, I'm gonna talk about mental health issues. And I'm gonna talk about the spiritual side to this. I talked about community, emotion, I talked about the psychological, I talked about the physical. I'm gonna talk about the spiritual next week, but what I was worried about is if I went there, that's all anybody would ever hear and we'd zone everything else out. We need to hear all of it. Stand with me, church, stand with me. Okay, this is my prayer. I'm not gonna ask people to come to the altar, but I'll ask you to raise your hands and this is gonna be my altar time, my prayer today. It's James chapter 1, verse 5, and it says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generally to all without finding fault, and, he, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded, unstable as they go. The Bible says, don't be unstable in this. If you ask for wisdom, God will give it to you. That, that's his word, not mine. So this is what I'm gonna pray. And without embarrassment, without shame, if you're dealing with a season of depression or you know someone that is and you say, today, we're gonna to deal with the spiritual next week. Today, I need God's wisdom. I need God to show up and begin to show me the steps of what's really going on, the physical, the emotional, the mental, the psychological. Would you just raise your hand right where you're at? I wanna pray for you. You're dealing with depression yourself. You know somebody that is. You just raise your hand. We're gonna ask for wisdom today. We're gonna to ask wisdom from God. Okay. Okay, keep your hand, keep your hand. As an act of surrender, as a place of saying, God, I need it, just keep your hands up. And now we're gonna pray. And I want you to combine your faith with me. Church, let's pray for everybody who's got their hand up this morning. Lord, we come before your throne. And God, we refuse to begin to accept a God of our denominational practices, whatever it might be, again, Protestant or Catholic or whatever we wanna say or call ourselves. God, we refuse to accept just a denominational practice, but we choose to receive the God of the Bible the God your word and your word has shown us that yes you perform miracles but yes when you deal with a depressed person you showed up in gentleness and kindness and wisdom and Lord we are asking today for those that are dealing with about a depression or we're asking for those Lord God that they know of somebody dealing with depression we pray that as James chapter 5 says if you ask you will receive we ask for spiritual wisdom in this place that you would fill us by the Spirit of God. And God, do we pray for miracles? Yes! We believe you're a God that could pull us out in an instant, but we also believe you're a God that will take us on a journey and there's deeper things that you need to heal in us as well. We accept both today, God. Let wisdom pour in this place. Let healing pour in this place. And whether you choose to heal right now, as we lift up those who put up their hands, or you choose to take them on a journey and bring healing and grace. We yield that to you, but we pray that you'd bring healing and life and power, God. You would manifest it in every life that's being honest before you today. For parents who are standing in the gap of children, God, give them wisdom. Give them wisdom of what could be catastrophic to their child, what can actually cause more harm, and what's the proper thing to do. When to force them to do something, when to ease back and let them do things, God, give them wisdom. Give Lord God parents wisdom of how to deal with a depressed child. Give us wisdom of how to speak to our friends, God. Show us, Lord God, when we need to interject and say, no, 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 this is something going on in your life and this is something that has to be dealt with and when we just need to be a listening ear and shut our mouths. Give us wisdom of what they need. And God, this is a personal selfish request. Give us cooking skills in this place. Let this place flow with just food. I know that sounds funny, but I mean it. Let us be aware of our physical needs. Let us be in need. Lord, open up our eyes when we're going too hard. Open up our eyes when we're just taking too much on. Lord, and give us the wisdom of how to begin to pace ourselves in a proper way so that we don't fall into these pits in these seasons, Lord God. God, quicken us. Bring warnings to us. Bring prophetic words. Let people come with words of knowledge, words of wisdom and say, hey, this is going on. Let it confirm things that you're already speaking in our word and help us be able to put on brakes. It is so hard for us as people to put on brakes. We are so driven to get that word of acceptance from you that we talked about just a few weeks ago that we push and 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 we, push and we never break. And because we don't break, we literally break. God, open up our eyes. God, I commit this congregation to you. Lord, Beth and I love them. The elders love them. And we want to see them, Lord God, built up. We know there's many battles ahead, but we need to be ready for them. We need to be built up and we need to learn, Lord God, how to take care of ourselves in the midst of the battles so that we can have the years of fighting instead of just the days of fighting, God. You would teach us how to be able to have longevity into the kingdom of God. Oh, we need it now more than ever. We need soldiers who aren't just going to burn out, but burn steady. And God, we pray for that in this house. Lord, we commit it all to you today. We love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Let's give the Lord one more round of applause. Let's thank him. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website springs church